You know, the best seats in this auditorium are in the front, and here's why. I get to hear all you singing, and it, it does my heart good, and it also kind of obliterates my off-key bad tone, right? Like, so if you're kind of quiet because you're in the back and you don't hear anybody, here's a selling point for the front seats. You can sing loud and nobody can hear you because everybody's behind you. So um, appreciate the opportunity to share God's word with you uh, yet again this morning. We're going to begin a new series in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you want to open your copy of the scriptures and find your way there, this morning what we're going to do is take a big overview of the book. Now there's 31 chapters, and in case you didn't know, at some point in time, someone in church history said, I'm going to do everybody a favor, and I'm going to split the book of Samuel into two books, First and Second Samuel. At one point in the Hebrew text, this is all one book, 31 chapters in the first, 24 in the second. That's a long series. Um, but we're not going to go through all that today. We're just going to focus on 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we, we're starting our discovery class next week. Uh, Joel's going to be leading the first three series of talks, and then I'll finish up with the, the next three. And in preparation for that discovery class, I dug into the history of South Canyon. As someone who's only been here since April, I need to learn what's the history of this church. And in the archives, um, with Rick's help, found all the notes that had been collected and saved for posterity's sake. And I discovered the, the history of this church. It started in 1953 in the fall. Um, and then it officially chartered with members, 13 members, in 1954. They had a dedication service for a building that they had built, a chapel. And uh, then it was off and running. And over the nearly 70-year history of this church, it has seen numerous building campaigns. We've moved from one location to another. We came into this facility in 2001, and there's been a whole flurry of pastors. I'm number 12, and you know what I found out is that uh, number one pastor did a building. I think number six did, but I know for sure number nine led a building, and number yeah, six did, nine did. Does that mean that as the 12th, we're going to have to build? Like, is there a pressure there? Because I'm, I'm good. I'm good with just enjoying the fruits of other people's hard labor. What I didn't find in the records is any stories of weddings or funerals. There was no stories of missionaries that were sent out or salvations and baptisms. So does that mean that none of that happened? No, certainly not. The answer is that the record that I was looking at was intended to reflect the development of the church and not specifically note the details of the church's inner workings or its fruitfulness. Think of it this way. The USA Today reads differently than a court transcript or a legislative bill that's being debated in Congress. Each of those have a specific purpose, and thus they have a unique perspective. And there are certain things that are recorded for specific reasons in specific ways. And I think that's how 1 Samuel is written. So today as we take this big overlook, have your thumbs ready or your finger if you're using a, a device, 
and be ready to flip through a bunch of passages because I want us to kind of get a feel for where we're going to be going in this book. You see, the book of 1 Samuel is based on lives. It's, it's interested in telling us stories about the lives of Samuel, of Saul, and David. It wasn't written by a contemporary of their time because that guy would have lived a long, long time. So it was written much later after these events took place. And it's clear as you read through the book of 1 Samuel that it's going to draw from various sources. So maybe the writer of 1 Samuel did get into the national archives of ancient Israel and dug through there, found these stories, and then he appropriated them. He used them for a purpose. And it has a unique purpose. It does have some genealogies and some prophecy, but it's primarily concerned with people, places, and events. And all these details in the book of 1 Samuel are true, but they are arranged in a story form rather than in a historical, chronological form. So it's not going to read like the classifieds. It's going to read completely different. And what is the main point that the author has in the book of 1 Samuel? I think it's this. What does it look like to be a covenant-keeping Israelite? And what does it look like to be a king of the Israel who keeps covenant? We're going to see a close connection as we go through it between Samuel and the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you know your Bible, the book of Deuteronomy is a book about the law. And Samuel is instituting the office of a king. And so kings need to know the law so that they can rule by it and submit themselves to it. We're also going to see how there's a connection between the books of Kings and Chronicles. From these different points of view, they're going to speak of the same events, sometimes in the same exact way, and so you know that they're sharing the same source. And then other times they're going to speak of the same events, but they will tweak it and they will use it for a specific point and purpose and emphasis. So here's four themes that we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Samuel. There's the the question of who actually will lead God's people. Second, what is the nature or the character of the people who are leading God's people? What controls them? What are their desires and ambitions? Third, how do they exercise their authority? And behind it all, is that big question. How do they understand themselves in relationship to God and in the covenant that he has made with his people? Overall, the book of 1 Samuel is a very personal account of people, and I think that's why it should matter to us today. Most of us are like, hey, take me to Paul's epistles. They're all practical. It's very linear. It's very Western in its thinking and outlines. But in the Old Testament, we have stories that capture our attention. And they are intended to do that because they show us something of the, the weakness and the frailty of the human condition and the need for righteousness. And although these events took place over 3,000 years ago, they transcend time and they challenge us with this question. What does it mean to live as a part of the community of God's people? So that's the big introduction We're going to take a high-level view this morning of leadership and how it's exercised in the book. 
So you might think that because 1 Samuel comes right after the book of Judges and Ruth, that it's the kings or it's the judges who ruled the people. But as you come to chapter 8, you realize that as Israel demands a king, it's not so much that Samuel, the judge at that time, was offended by it. It was that God was offended by it. He was Israel's king, and by demanding a human king, they rejected him. And so it provides, in this book, a candid look at the glory and sin within the community and in its king. And so this morning, I want us to kind of focus on this one topic, and that is leadership. All of us are leaders. Maybe you didn't realize that, but I guarantee you that if everybody's sitting back in the Family Life Center and all the donuts are displayed out there, once somebody goes and grabs a donut, somebody else is going to follow. You're exercising influence. And so whether you're in second grade or you're starting your second decade or you've been around the block a few times, you all have the authority to influence people in your life, whether it's your husband or your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, the kids in your class, the people that you work with or that are employed by you. We all have authority. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at how authority is used in this book and to see that what we see in 1 Samuel, it actually flows from what began in the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back there, Um, But in Genesis, we see that God created Adam to be his vice regent. That means that Adam was going to be the big man on the block who would oversee all of God's creation and rule it under God's authority according to God's ways and plans and purposes. Adam was set apart for this purpose. And then what Adam did, he chose to go his own way. And because of that, as the first man, he corrupted himself. And all of mankind fell. And since the fall, isn't this true? All mankind has yearned for the rule of one who is good, holy, just, and righteous. I mean, don't we want leaders who are good and holy people? Who do right things and who execute justice? We're tired of scandals. We're tired of corruption. We're tired of graft and people who are there for their own agendas and purposes. We want someone to be good all the time. That is the innate calling of our hearts for what was lost in the fall. And what 1 Samuel does is it shows us this narrative about how sin will affect a leader's use of authority. And so, just like we could lead someone to donuts, and that's innocuous, that's okay, we can also lead someone into disparaging somebody else. We can open the door for criticism that's unkind and ungodly. We can open the door to blasphemy, to lies, deceit. We can lead people into all kinds of things. Why is that? Because there is this corrupt nature that we are born with. And in 1 Samuel, it appears that such a one is going to be David, that he will be finally the king that Israel needs in comparison to Saul, the king that they demanded. But then by the time you get to the end of 2 Samuel, 
you realize that not even David could be what God called him to be. And yet there is hope because there's this prophetic word that one would come from David's line who will be the perfect king. Now, we're going to see some tragic things in the book of 1 Samuel as it, res- as it relates to sinful leadership. You're going to see a man named Eli and his sons. You're going to see the people of Israel and Saul himself. And it should be instructive to each and every one of us, whether we are elders at South Canyon, whether we are teachers here, or whether we are parents, whomever and everyone who exercises authority, we should see how difficult it is to follow the Lord, and yet how important it is to do so. And we should mourn when authority is abused, whether it be in government, society, or in the church. And you know what's so tragic is that often the biggest um, demographic that is hurt by the abuse of leadership is women and children. It was true in the Old Testament, and it's true today. There are many ways in which one can abuse authority, and our holy God is offended by them all. Now, I just laid out a really bleak case for the human condition, and I'm probably not telling you anything that you haven't already known. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three observations from the book of 1 Samuel that show us how those in authority should exercise leadership, okay? Those who are in leadership, how they should rightly exercise authority. Let's see, first of all, go to chapter 2 of the book of 1 Samuel. You're going to see in verse 1 of chapter 2 that Hannah is giving a prayer. This is an uh, appreciation to God for answering her cry for a child after being barren. And what she teaches us in this prayer, this song of thanksgiving, is that she looks to the future, as you get to verse 10, where the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There was no kingly talk at this time. Where did... Where did Hannah get these concepts of a king and one who would be strengthened, one who would be anointed? God was using her prophetically to speak of a future time. And so what we see here, just in this initial look, is that in this prayer, she is looking to the future where justice will be served. And not only for the sake of Israel, God's covenant people, but to the ends of the earth. If you look at 2 Samuel, now I told you we were going to go deep into this, but i got to show you this because, again, this was once an entire book. And you see the top of it and you see the tail of it, and things start making sense of why it was written in the way it was. So if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 22, I want to show you verse 51. David now. So this is interesting. The book of Samuel opens with a prayer. Chapter 1 A woman is pleading and begging God for a child. Her identity is wrapped up in being a mother, and she commits herself to devote this child to the Lord, and God answers her prayer. The book of Samuel, in its original form, closes with a prayer. But it's not a woman, 
It's a king. And so as you come to chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, look at verse 51. And David, in his prayer, as you see, chapter 22 is a long prayer, a song, again, that David writes when God delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he says this, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So what we see here, not only is the coincidence of it opening with prayer and closing with prayer, but we see already an, a fulfillment of Hannah's prayer that God would judge the ends of the earth, he would give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then David says, I recognize that I am God's chosen ruler over his people and that he has blessed me with favor. And Further, David would not only rule for his lifetime, but his offspring would be on the throne forever. I mean, this is, it's an interesting thing. And so here it is. First, we see, here's a good practice for helping leaders exercise their authority rightly. It is to pray. It is to pray. And by praying, is, we do this. We recognize that All authority comes from God, and because it comes from God, it's borrowed authority, and it's not inherent in ourselves. Satan tempted Jesus to worship him. He stated that he possessed the authority to make Jesus the king, Lord of all the earth. You just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. Let's just fast track you to the throne, David, or Jesus. And Jesus' response in Luke 4.8 is that God alone was Lord, and therefore Satan was not to be worshipped. He was not to be served. And we see here that whether it's Hannah praying or David praying, as he looks back and sees how God has delivered him from all his enemies, he's confident that God will not only give him salvation, but that God will fulfill the covenant promise by bringing an eternal offspring, a line from David, where his son will rule forever, the Messiah. And so, as we pray, in the most basic sense, we are confessing our dependence on God and not ourselves. Maybe you haven't prayed in a while, but consider this. Good leaders should always be in prayer. And not only should those in leadership pray, but we as a church should pray on behalf of our leaders. We should ask God to raise up more. He would protect them and keep them from trusting in themselves. That he would help, whether it's elders or parents or teachers or leaders, whomever, that they would willingly submit themselves to the Lord. And we should pray that God would raise up more elders and pastors. Here's a second observation from 1 Samuel. You go back to 1 Samuel, chapter 2. Just after Hannah's prayer, we see the corruption of human nature. So if we were to read verses 12 through 25, you'd get a very bleak picture. I want to just highlight a few verses. Look at verse 12. 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Look at verse 22. 
Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the very place that God was to be worshipped. Where the Ark of the Covenant was, the, the tabernacle in the city of Shiloh, they were to worship there, and as Men and women are coming to offer their sacrifices. These two sons of a priest are abusing their leadership and their authority. And Eli said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Here's a second observation. Not only should leaders pray, but leaders should practice humility and restraint in their leadership. You have to guard yourself To whom much has been given, much is required, Jesus says. These were men who were given the priestly office. They were to help usher people into the worship of God. They were to accept offerings. They were to offer them on their behalf. They were to lead them in prayer and thanksgiving and worship and obedience. And instead of that, they stood above it all and said they can do what they choose to do. Now look at verse chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's not just a problem within the priesthood. You see, the book of Judges tells us how wicked the people were, and God had to raise up a deliverer to rescue them. But now when we get to 1 Samuel, we realize that that infection of sin has not only filtrated all throughout the community of Israel, all the cities and all the 12 tribes, but it's even in the priesthood And then we're taken backward in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You look at verses 4 through 22. All the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, You're old. That's a great greeting, huh? Makes you feel great. You're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You look at verse 6. This displeased Samuel. He prayed to the Lord. Look at what verse 7 says. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. You see, not only were the priests corrupt, not only did the priests, from a negative way, show us what not to do with leadership, so did the leaders and people of Israel. They rejected God. And time after time, we will see that Saul, the king that they demanded and wanted, was just like the people. 
He was a man who struggled with humility and restraint. He took upon himself the role of a priest, and so he will offer a sacrifice in spite of it being forbidden from him. In 1 Samuel 13, we see that in verses 8 through 14. Then Saul, in his rashness to get revenge on his enemies, will say, no one eats this day while we are battling. I will have absolute victory over my enemies in 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm sorry, verse, uh, chapter 14. And then again in 1 Samuel chapter 13, 15. Boy, I'm struggling there, aren't I? Three chapters in a row, we see Saul failing to lead with humility and restraint. He was told to destroy a group of people that God had marked out as enemies of God and Israel. And Saul says, I kind of do it, and then I kind of not. Three times in three chapters. Negative examples. But I want to show you that there are those who did understand authority is borrowed and it's not inherent. And they used it with humility and restraint. So let's look at some positive things here. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. And you're going to see this in the life of Samuel. He says to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart... Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. You see, what Samuel is doing is he's showing us that leadership is given from God to be used with humility and with restraint and to actually bless the people of God. Authority, leadership by itself, is not inherently evil. The problem is the person who's exercising it. Samuel is praying and teaching the people to serve God. He'll do that again in chapter 12. Now, if you jump to chapter 24, we're going to see a guy named David who had been anointed king of Israel. And although Saul had been hunting him and trying to take his life many times... David twice could have taken Saul's life when Saul was not prepared for it. One time, Saul goes into a cave, a little quiet moment, use the bathroom. What he didn't realize is David and his men were hiding in the back of the cave. David could have taken him. His men were egging him on. This is the time. All this ends right here. Strike him and it's done. God's delivered him into your hand. And David said, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. That is not something to be attached to pastors. Let's just be clear about that. We are not the Lord's anointed in that sense of David and Saul and kings of Israel. But David had a respect for God and for Saul. Another time, Saul is left unguarded while he slept at night, and David and his men find him and take a spear and a jug, symbols that we were that close and we let you escape. And Saul, once again, is vulnerable, but David says, I will trust in God and wait for God. So as you come to 1 Samuel chapter 24, you'll see this. Verses 1 through 10, David is sparing Saul's life when he's in the cave. If you flip over a couple chapters later, chapter 26, this is where David spares his life when Saul is camping on the hill. And David comes and finds him. 
But here's another positive way in which David demonstrated. You go all the way nearly to the end of the book of 1 Samuel and look at chapter 30. This is something really strange to our ears, but it's beneficial, and I think it was uh, something that was a great blessing to those who were under David's authority. So you look at chapter 30 in verses 16 through 25, and you're, you're going to drop right into the middle of a narrative where David and his men, they all had families, and the city in which their families lived was captured by an enemy while David and his men were off preparing for war. They come home to find the city leveled. Houses that they had worked on are burning. Everything's gone. The livestock, the treasure, the loved ones. So David and his men go and chase these marauders. They're going to see if they can rescue their loved ones and their possessions. And they do catch up with them. But in the process of pursuing this long, hard hunt, 200 of the 600 men are so fatigued from the long trip they'd made to get back to their hometown that halfway through, they couldn't go any further. And so David and his men, who are able, go back. They rescue them. They defeat the enemy. And then they come back. And some bum in the group says, these guys that stayed behind, they don't deserve any of the spoils. David's like, no, this isn't the way it's going to be. In fact, what's going to happen is, as you look at verse uh, 25 or 24, as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David instituted this art of war, Rule of war, I should say. Where the frontline soldiers are going to share in the proceeds of their victory just like those who are maintaining the camp and watching the stuff. Now, that, what does that show you about the character of this leader? He's doing something to bless the people. He's understanding that God has given him authority that is to be used for the benefit and the betterment of those under his care. How often are leaders motivated by what's in it for themselves? What can they get from it rather than how can they help others flourish? In the context of the church, one of the inherent blessings in a plurality of elders is this, that we are all equals. I don't have any more of a vote than anybody else. That we working together are able to discern and get guidance from God where no one person can rule the others. This isn't like the Lord of the Rings. We happen to have nine elders, so this is appropriate. One ring to rule them all, right? That's not how it works within a church. Not when it's good and godly in its pursuits. We are all brothers. We are all laboring for the same common cause. We understand that by submitting ourselves to one another, we will demonstrate dependence on God to guide us. And so, elders, I encourage you, practice humility and restraint instead of demanding your way. And elders, we also need to teach the church that the church has authority. This is really interesting as you get into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus gives instructions on how to deal with conflict within the church. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. 
You're supposed to do it privately. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now notice this, Matthew 18, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to this small group of people who are lovingly confronting him, and this happens repeatedly, then you go and tell it to the church, the whole assembly. And then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, he's speaking to the church here, whatever the church, I'm going to put in, binds on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever the church looses on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the church's authority. We don't just abdicate to leaders. You make all the decisions for us. Tell us what to do. And then we all just sit here and we'll do armchair quarterbacking because that's just human nature. But we, we don't have any authority. No, if this platform for the gospel ever strays from teaching and preaching God's word, it's the congregation who must rise up with one voice and say, we will not stand for heresy being taught here. We know the Word, and we hold fast to the Word. It's God's Word that makes God's people. It's the creative, regenerative power of the living Word to produce in us a living faith and a living hope. So we have this responsibility as a body. Paul says in Galatians, If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I mean, this isn't Jesus forecasting or Paul forecasting the internet, which has made it easier for us to accumulate to ourselves teachers. But it is a truth. Here's the, and here's another truth. Not only is there a danger to us and our hearts moving away from the Lord, but we have to remember, where does our authority come from? Every one of us has been given authority by God to be used for godly purposes. Christ is the head of this church and of every church, not the elders. Although the elders are set apart by God and the church to teach and lead, guess what? Elders are still sheep. We're still a part of the body. And yes, a primary task for elders is to educate the church on how the church should use its authority. What Jesus described in Matthew 18 as binding and loosing. Declaring, this person truly is a follower. We've spent time with them. We're watching their life and their doctrine. They love Jesus. This is evident. But this person who claims to love Jesus has nothing to do with the things of Jesus, who has nothing but sin in their life, and they are unashamed by it. That person is truly not a follower of Jesus. That's the authority of the church. 
The church also has the authority to declare who's walking in darkness, who's a member and who isn't. These are the people who've covenanted together that have committed themselves to be under this doctrine, this body of truth, this teaching, and this leadership who will care for themselves and invest themselves for the work of the gospel in this body. And then there are those that haven't yet, but we hope will. The church is responsible to guard the faith by ensuring the teaching it hears is consistent with Scripture. And this demonstrates how the elders and the church work together, the congregation, the members. Here's the final thing. Not only should those who are in leadership exercise godly authority by praying and demonstrating dependence on God, by walking in humility and restraint in the use of their leadership, But ultimately, it flows from understanding the glory of God is at stake. This is what we're called to. So if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll be done here in a minute. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 37. This is the iconic passage that um, we're all going to know, right? I mean, even in sports today, it's David and Goliath, right? It's the little guy against the big guy. We came from Indiana, so there's this little town, ironically, shares the same name as the town I grew up in. It's called Milan, southern part of Indiana, small podunk hick town, and it takes on Muncie Central, which was the big behemoth basketball team in the day. And so you now have the movie Hoosiers. You can all thank Indiana for that great basketball tribute, and it's David against Goliath, okay? So David understood that he was to live and act for the glory of God and not for the good of his name. Saul let David fight Goliath, and David says this in 1 Samuel 17, 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. If you look down at verses 45 through 47, David not only said that to Saul, but even as he is going out to meet Goliath, hear his words. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He goes on to say what he's going to do with, with Goliath. And then the purpose of all this, notice, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. There's a lot that we're going to unpack when we get here to chapter 17, but let, me, let this suffice for now. David is not seeking to make his name known on the mouths and the tongues of everyone in Israel. He is not posting something, the new TikTok video. He is not creating an account on Instagram to bring followers and to become an influencer. David is not interested in YouTube revenues. And advertising and all this, David is here and acting as the Lord's anointed should. He is seeking God's glory. You see, a few chapters before this, 
David had secretly been anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. And the spirit left Saul and it came upon David. David is doing what he's doing because God is leading him to it. He wants all the earth to know who God is. And finally, I want to, to jump one more time to 2 Samuel and verse tw- chapter 23. Again, this, these two books were once one, and in his last recorded words, David reveals how God told him to use authority. So if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, look at verses 3 and 4. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue, he says in verse 2. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David sees that authority is to be used first for good, justly, and it's to be connected with a fear of the Lord, which results in what? These images of light and rain. It's flourishing. It's, it's the blessing of people who are thriving under his leadership. The images are talking about ground that nourished and is blessed by light and rain, and that is connected to his authority. So again, we're back where we started. One of the biggest issues that we're going to see as we go through the book of 1 Samuel is how authority is used. And what we see here already this morning is that it comes first from God, And he intends it to be used for his glory and not our own. And when leaders demonstrate they're dependent upon God by praying, and they use their authority with humility and restraint, they then model and teach others how God's authority is to be used and what the result of all that is, that the people flourish and that God's glory is made known. I mean... Here's the problem. God has made it clear in the Word that there is no human being who's been able to do that except Jesus. And here's the other side of that coin. Praise God that He is the King who can satisfy our deepest longings. That He truly is just. That He is holy. That He's good and that He's righteous. That He alone can protect us from the deepest enemy of our soul, which is sin and death. And what we are called to be in and of our, is not found in ourselves. Right? Like the standard that God sets for leaders, David couldn't keep. I mean, we're probably more like Saul than we are like David. We're, we're more like Peter than we are like John. But none of them and none of us are able to keep that standard. That's why we need gospel transformation. And, and why that when that transformation takes place, it's so otherworldly. Like it can't be explained. It doesn't fit any paradigm that this world has. How did you become this? It wasn't AA. It wasn't good breeding. It wasn't the Christian school. It wasn't the Christian home. It was God, the transforming power of the gospel. 
You see, when our relationship with God is restored and it's framed around the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we will find ourselves in this new exciting life in which we can humbly and lovingly live as godly influences in our homes, in our schools, in this church, and in our society. So under God's Spirit, we have been set free from the control of these sinful desires. We can exercise authority in ways that bring Him glory and help people grow in their knowledge of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray that God will transform us. That God will change South Canyon. That he will change our society through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of the word that shows all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God loved us while we were yet sinners in that Christ died for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a people. I know this is a big rambling maybe in a sense sermon and introduction to the series, but Lord, it's clear, studying through this book, how leadership, how important it is, how desperately it is needed, and yet how fraught with danger it is. Lord, we are prone to wander. We are prone to abuse our authority for our own means and ends. We use people to get what we want. Help us to use our authority for the good of your people, and the glory of your name. Help us to walk with humility and restraint. Help us to be a people who are marked and known as a people of prayer, a church that prays, that is willing to gather, even if it's inconvenient, to gather with one another and pray for gospel desires, for gospel work, for regeneration, for evangelism, for discipleship. Lord, we are very quick to pray for needs, physical, temporal needs, for wisdom. Let us also be marked as a people who pray for the kingdom of God, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this, Lord, because we know we are insufficient in and of ourselves. We ask this because we know that you're quick and eager to hear the prayers of your people, that you are not unhappy with us asking for spiritual good things. And so we pray, Lord, that you would build your church upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen.